You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Dinosaur Don Bluth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. You are listening to What If, Episode 2A, covering a period of What If from 1979. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and in the six issues of What If we're going to be talking about today, uh, we, will t- we will discuss such important questions like, what if Conan the Barbarian walked the Earth today? What if Sergeant Fury had fought World War II in outer space? What if Nova had been four other people? What if Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, fought on the side of Fu Manchu? What if Ghost Rider, Spider-Woman, and Captain Marvel had remained villains? And what if Doctor Strange were a disciple of Dormammu? That's just to tease you, to get your appetite going, for this episode is going to be a wild ride. Uh, I originally broadcast these episodes as live streams on my Facebook page, and so this episode is a compilation of some of those episodes, so you may see some variety in the uh, audio quality and such, and there might be references to stuff that people who watch them live would see on the screen that doesn't translate very well to a podcast episode, but uh, I tried to cut out those parts if I could, hopefully you will still be able to understand what's going on. This episode has a few interview clips from Roy Thomas and Don Glute, and I just want to make a public formal apology to Don Glute because I recorded these live stream episodes before I interviewed him, and he told me how to correctly pronounce his name. So you'll hear in this episode, I, I erroneously say Don Glut, and uh, it's, it's Glute, just so you know. You can join my Facebook page about Epic Collections, and you can also like me on Facebook, Instagram, and social media. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast, and YouTube, by the way, as well, YouTube. And other than that, I think that's all the information we need to go. So enough chatting from me. Let's get on with our episode. What if Conan the Barbarian walked the Earth today? This is the first issue in What If Classic, The Complete Collection, Volume 2. We're already on Volume 2, people. We finished up Volume 1 in the last episode, and now we're on to the second one, uh, starting with this issue here, with Conan. Now, when the original reprints, the What If Classic reprints, were reprinted like a decade ago, this Conan issue was not included because Marvel didn't have the license anymore to reprint Conan comics. Uh, th- that was uh, it was Dark Horse that had those those rights. But Marvel has recently, if unless you've been living under under a rock, you you, you should know this already. Marvel has the Conan rights back again, and they've been reprinting a ton of Conan stuff and producing a ton of new Conan material. And so this What If collection does have the Conan 
issue in it. And there's a second Conan story that'll be in volume four when that one's released later this year as well. However, for some reason, this issue is not on Marvel Limited Unlimited quite yet. Um, I don't know if it will be. It doesn't seem like any of the Conan material is on Marvel Unlimited yet. But uh, if that ever happens, then you'll be able to see that one. That'll be nice. So I've had to, uh, thanks to my friend Phil, uh, who's part of the uh, the Epic Collection Facebook group. He sent me over uh, this scan of uh, What If Number 13 that I can use today. There's a, John says, there's a whole series of this called Exo Manowar. Um, are you talking about the um, displaced, like, man out of time kind of uh, feel? Where was I? What was I saying? Oh, yeah, Conan. Uh, so Conan is in this issue right here. And it's it's a what if, but it could actually be, because it deals with time travel, could be a reality thing. But it still is a what if, because the events actually take place. Um, it, it's an alternate story of what happened in Savage Sword of Conan number seven. And so if we want to go through here, oh, f first of all, I should say also that if you didn't hear the other episodes, that we've been waiting for this Conan uh, issue for a long time. The, they've been teasing about this. It's apparently taken John Buscema months and months and months to get this issue drawn because of all those other commitments or traveling or whatever. So it's been in uh, the comics, pr promoted in the, the comics and the letter pages and the little next time blurb for several months coming leading up to this point. And we're finally at the point where now we finally get to read this issue. There's a lot of hype surrounding it now. It better not disappoint. So I went into reading this. And yeah, it doesn't disappoint. It is an excellent, excellent issue. Yeah, the only problem was, I don't know, get, you know, getting it done. Maybe John didn't have time to work on it then and this and that. And for, it kept getting uh, delayed, didn't it? Yes. It, it, in a pretty much every issue leading up to that, you say, okay, I think it's <laughs> going to be next time. I think it's going to be the next issue, yeah. but it never got there. It wasn't that I had it sitting around and I wasn't dialoguing. Maybe John, you know, because he had other stuff and it was a non-scheduled story, maybe yeah. he got pulled off to do other things and that kind of thing. It, it, it wasn't, you know, because uh, it wasn't because John didn't do it fast or just because maybe he had something else he had to do first or something, and we kept delaying it. That's all, though. That, that's the only thing. It, it wasn't like, uh, you know, so there's situations where the artist was screwing up or the writer uh, was screwing up. We right. just, it just had other things, so it just got put off and became, what, number 13 or something. Lucky number yeah. 13. I should also say that, believe it or not, this is the first Conan I've ever read. This is amazing that I get to to experience a what if first, and I hope that's not offensive to all of you out there. <laughs> I just haven't had the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to the first Marvel Conan Epic Collection, and if it's anything like this, I think it's going to be excellent because this issue was excellent. Okay, so let's go on to the first page here, written by Roy Thomas and John Buscema with Ernie Chan inking, and this is the regular team of who's doing the book, the Conan book at the time. And let me tell you, this is top-notch stuff. John Buscema is a master, and I guess this is, you know, arguably his some of his best work is on the Conan series, and it just doesn't disappoint. The scans that I am showing you here are a little bit muddy. The Epic Collection really cleans up the quality of the line work. A lot of people may not like it because it's too crisp and clean and doesn't have the, the graininess of, the, of, of an old comic book, but... But when you're looking at these old scans, the a lot of the detail is very obscured. And so it's nice, especially because Ernie Chan's inking is very, very fine. Uh, when you get into the nitty gritty of some of his stuff here, let's see if I can find a good example. His cross hatching and such is really, really amazing. 
and you just don't get this you don't get that coming into these bad scans yeah but he only did breakdowns a lot of the artwork in there there's an awful lot of that that's really chan in fact the wonderful likeness, although John could certainly do this, the wonderful likenesses from photographs of my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, Dan, they were all that, all, most of that stuff that, that looked so real and so good and so realistic was uh, was pretty much done by Ernie. Right. Yeah, he, he's an incredible John, of course, did all the storytelling and that kind of thing, but Ernie, uh, Ernie put a lot into that. John didn't like Ernie's work much, but I think they made a great team. Okay, so coming into the beginning here, we have, we're, we're set into the middle of a story, the one is telling us that that Conan has entered a trade city called Akbatana, and he's having drinks with a woman that he had that he just met, who is a dancer. And this whole story is told in Savage Sword of Conan number seven, the Black and White magazine. I read that issue after I read this, so I could see where the differences are. And that that story goes into far much more detail. And because it is a magazine, they're not bound to the comic code like the comic is, although this scene, this comic gets a little brutal at times. So you see a lot more, including her sexy dancing. They, they uh, have that whole, a whole dance sequence in there, which is really great, drawn by John B. Sema again, and inked by Alfredo Alcala, actually. So Conan is drugged and brought to this guy, a wizard, who apparently has a magic well that shows people different ages. And he tries describing the future of Babylon to Conan, and Conan doesn't quite grasp the picture here, as you can see. Um, and they put him in this basket, and the scene, this scene plays out. There's a lot more detail uh, in the actual issue, like a band of uh, cavemen uh, attack Conan instead of him just being hit on the head with a mallet here. I guess this is maybe to represent a Stone, stone Age tool. Um, oh yeah, actually it says here, by an axe wielded by one of Shamish's Stone Age minions. So yeah, there's a whole ton of cavemen that capture them and put them in this, this tub to lower them down into the well. And then they, they, then we get a scene where Conan sees visions of both the past and the future. He kind of flip-flops between the two, and that's what we see in the comic, the original comic as well. The defining moment here, or the thing that changes, is that as they're climbing back up the well, the rope snaps and Conan gets plunged down into the well. This doesn't happen in Savage Sword of Conan number seven. And so here's where the story diverges. And he goes all the way down, 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 and falls into 1977 New York City. Um, the, the specific date is Wednesday, July 13, 1977. And the, the reason why this date is specific is because there is a very famous blackout in on that date in New York City, like real world events, the whole city completely blacked out. Like it wasn't just a little localized thing. There are several thunderbolt strikes that like took out the entire electronic grid of New York. And, and so we now know that that is a result of Conan coming to the present day. They've kind of worked that into, <laughs> into history. And I think that's really cool that they take real world events uh, that that Roy Thomas had taken real world events and created this story surrounding it. So that's cool. Um, yeah. So Conan is is now here. He, of course, he's not dressed as everybody else is, but maybe in New York City that is not such an unusual thing. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but yeah, we have uh, Conan discovering the the world that surrounds him. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to notice: if you look at the pages where Conan is in the past. John Buscema has created thick, jagged outlines on all the panels 
to indicate Conan's time or Conan's world. And when the rope snaps, we go into thin lines to indicate this is the new timeline. We're going to go to uh, our world now moving forward. And so everything else now has regular thin outlines on all of the panels. I think that's a really cool effect. Steven has a comment here. He says, the art for this issue of What If looks fantastic. I love these videos, and you have persuaded me to pick up the What If books. Good. I'm glad, Steven. These are excellent stories. Very, very fun. Uh, I'm glad you're enjoying them. And this artwork is, like, head and shoulders better than anything else in this series. It's so good, uh, which makes me so excited for, for these Marvel Age Conan epic collections that will come out eventually. Okay, so Conan is tromping through town. And uh, he meets up with a bunch of different people This just to show that he's a fish out of water, to show that he is meeting up with people and things just aren't the way that he's used to them being in terms of the way he's treated, in terms of the way that society works with shopkeepers and the police. There's even a little cameo of Peter Parker's Spider-Man right here, Peter and Mary Jane. They're, they're caught up in the action and Peter says, uh, this is none of our business, Mary Jane. I better take you home. And then he says, if... if it's anything really serious, I can come back later as Spider-Man. And just to make it obvious that this is Peter, John Buscema has drawn Peter in a red webbed button-up shirt. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's funny. The other thing to note here is that Conan doesn't speak English, of course, because he English, I don't think English even existed uh, as a language back in this day, day and age. Maybe it did, probably did. I don't know. I don't even know how old Conan is supposed to be. But because he's speaking different language, all of his speech bubbles are are drawn in the same thick outline that John Buscema drew those panels early on to indicate also that this is something from Conan's age, Conan's time. So anytime he speaks, his bubbles are jagged and thick. And so we know that he is speaking his Hyborian language or whatever it is. Conan's first encounter with um, uh, with a vehicle, and he thinks it's a, a metal dragon. He thinks it's eating this woman, so he tries to uh, tries to to disarm it, but it doesn't work. And uh, and so he, we meet this our our side character, I guess the other protagonist in this one, a cab driver in New York who kind of takes Conan under her wing and shows him the ropes, saves his life from the uh, from the police officers, or probably more accurately, saves the police officers' lives. Oh, one other note that I wanted to mention. Where did that go? Uh, way back here when he's running around town, um, one person makes a comment. Uh, yeah, when he first, one one girl says, are you sure that isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger? When she sees Conan just walking down the street. And this is significant because this comic came out in 1977 and the Conan movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't come out until the 80s. So this is pre, this is predicting the casting of the of the Conan the Barbarian movie, <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. Didn't they didn't know it? Another little Easter egg is on the front cover of this issue. There is a poster, a Star Wars poster, and if this is indeed July of 1977 that Conan is transported to, Star Wars hit the theaters just two months before this, because Star Wars was in theaters May of 1977. Okay, where were we? Moving back to the uh, the cab story here. This one panel where he strikes the cab with his sword is totally red. It's got a bright red background. And I love this effect of like the rage that he feels is emulated by the color in the background. And we'll see this come up a few times uh, in, in some of the fights later on. 
So the cab driver does a weird thing and takes um, Conan back to her apartment, which is extremely odd um, because he is a stranger. He doesn't speak a language and he's carrying a sword and he's not wearing clothes. Very strange, <laughs> but it has, happens for the sake of the story. Hemi says that they recruited Arnold in 1977 to play Conan. Uh, was that for a movie or was it the casting really early at that time? I'm not sure. Um, but So maybe there was a reason why they mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger in this issue here. Anyway, Conan does what he does often. He says, I will protect you, woman, and then he makes love to her. And we find out that her name is Danette. Another significant thing, because Danette is the name of Roy Thomas's, well, would-be wife. They weren't married at the time, but Danette, <laughs> Danette Thomas now is, uh, yeah, you've probably seen her name. In fact, she goes by Dan. She legally changed her name to Dan in the 80s. And Dan and Roy Thomas co-wrote a, a bunch of stuff in the Marvel Universe, including like when Roy was on Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme in the in the 90s. Dan was a co-writer on a lot of those issues. And so this now is a story of Conan <laughs> being friendly with Roy Thomas's girlfriend. Uh, very, very funny. But anyway, so they have their moment, and then they, they're woken, um, of course, because the city's still in the middle of darkness. They're woken, and Conan sees that there are some looters, and he's going to go take care of the looters. He doesn't know that. He thinks that maybe the, the shop below her apartment belongs to her, but he's going to take care. And this is where the red panels take play, t uh, come into play again. We get um, on the, what is what page is this? It's page 30 in the single issue. I don't know what it'll appear. Oh, in the, in the epic collection, or, or <laughs> in the complete collection, it is page 26 and 27. And let me tell you, the because the epic collections don't, because it's the original colors, the, the reds just, they punch so, so well in the, in the color restoration because it's not muted because the inks haven't faded into newsprint that has matured over 40 years. Uh, but let me, let me tell you, the, this red right here where Conan's punching the guy in the face, and especially in the next page where the whole uh, right column is all red, red panels, it just looks fantastic. And this is some, some great action sequences. John Buscema's artwork is, is just stunning. So good. Just these poses, the, the tension, the, the pacing, the poses, the, the action shots, the flow of all of the characters. You can see the rage in his face. It just looks really, really good. Oh, and then, yeah, and then the Conan lifts a red vehicle, and the red also is to kind of highlight without changing the background so you can get an idea of where he's standing. The red also highlights that strength and that rage. And I wonder if this bottom panel where uh, where he is uh, flipping the car over, I wonder if that is supposed to be a little nod to Action Comics number one with Superman throwing the car because it kind of has a similar feel to it, especially with the people running in the foreground. So that's cool. Anyway, so the uh, Roy also puts in a little commentary about the events of that blackout and all of the people looting and the city kind of going a little bit nuts. It interjects that into the story here to show, I think, the just the uh, the effect that Conan's arrival had on the world, <laughs> but also just because it was a hot button subject in the day of the way the world reacted let me tell you the the only time in vancouver when we had major looting and a crime spree um and like the whole city turning on end like that was when the canucks lost game seven of the stanley cup finals 
uh, a few years back. <laughs> it was hockey. The whole city, uh, they had to bring out the riot squad after the Canucks lost on that game. <laughs> okay, so turning the page here, we have this one panel where Conan is sitting in Dan's window looking out. And I just love this panel. Such a calm moment of Conan reflecting. The pose is so natural. And it's just like, this is what I love about John B. Sama. Not only is he great with the huge, big, epic moments, but he's really good in these calm, reflective moments too. I love this panel so much. So Dan decides to show Conan. She, she's figured out that he's obviously not from here. In fact, he's probably not from our time. So she brings out some books of history to try and, uh, try and see if Conan recognizes anything. And he immediately points out the Guggenheim Museum as something that the the wizard at the beginning was trying to describe to Conan. So she takes him over to the museum to see if it will help give any clues to Conan's past. And there are some looters there. There's a robbery taking place in the museum that Conan and Dan stumble across. And Dan gets um, shot in the process. And Conan goes nuts. He goes absolutely bonkers. And I think it's a, it's a team of four or five men. He kills all of them. And this is a very surprisingly violent scene. Maybe not surprisingly if you're familiar with Conan, but based on the other issues of what if, this is very mature content compared to what we've seen in the other issues. Like very, very brutal. Um, no mercy. This is what Conan is all about, I assume. <laughs> uh, but very well told. Like the, it's, it's all well laid out. The action is, is excellent as usual. And then he saves the day. And there's this great moment where Conan and uh, Dan, like, she's, like, trying to figure out how to, to solve his problems, uh, send him back to his time. And the, it, the whole page is broken up into 12 equal-sized uh, panels. And when you break up a page into more panels than usual, uh, it takes longer to read because there's more action to look at. There's more dialogue because you put some dialogue in each panel. It's way more time-consuming to read a panel, a page like this, than it is to read a page that only has four panels. So when we had the action pages a little while ago, let's go back to the beginning of this fight sequence where Conan takes on everybody. This one, uh, this first page has, or I guess it's the page before, this page has uh, four, five, six, seven panels. This page has seven panels. I guess he's broken it up into seven panels for most of these pages, but they're bigger. They're bigger. It takes, it's easier to read. And then once the fighting stops, he's broken the panels down into 12, which really slows down the action. It makes you take your time. The sense of adrenaline is now calming down. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just a, a, an interesting storytelling technique just based on the, the number of panels in the page. And then the action ramps up a little bit more, so we get fewer panels again. And Conan is, uh, retreats to the roof where he holds up his, he holds aloft his mighty sword and lightning strikes the sword and sends him back to his time. And again, this last panel is 12, uh, this last page is 12 panels. Not because they need to cram in as many panels on the last page to tell us to finish telling the story, but because we want to take our time to say, yeah, he's gone, now he's back, and he's going to get on with the rest of his life. And he still has that beret that was given to, to him by Dan, and Dan still has the bracelet that Conan gave her. So there is a few time-displaced items. Excellent, excellent issue. So good. 
Um, absolutely loved it. The biggest thing that I want to know is that is uh, if this if they can work this into modern continuity, I would love to see the uh, a future story where Dan ends up having a, a Conan baby and it's now fully grown because this was in the 70s and it, you know 40 years later. Conan's son is an adult, and now Conan is in regular Marvel continuity. So, kind of this this what if story is another one of these ones that came true because he's joined the Savage Avengers. If you've read that, so he is in modern day Marvel universe. And so, if he met his forty year old son uh, in one of these upcoming stories, I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> Somebody should get on that. Um, I think I don't know. Is it Jason Aaron that's writing that? People should tweet Jason Aaron. And get him to to bring up Conan's illegitimate son from the past, technically future timeline paradox story. <laughs> I think that would be great. Okay, Stephen has a question. He says, "What has been your favorite story? What if story so far?" It has to be this one, without a question. This one has stood out to be uh, the best thing that I've read so far. Um, if I had to pick a different story, the the uh, the Jane Foster story was really good too. Uh, also include I also like the Avengers story from What If number three, uh, those ones are really good. Th- this series has actually been quite consistently on top throughout the entire time, and I understand it just gets better from here on in, uh, which is great. But I think that the the concept and the execution of all of these issues has has been quite quite good. I'm very impressed with this series so far, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. And speaking of what comes next. What if number 14 is, what if Sergeant Fury had fought World War II in outer space? That's right. What if the battle was taken to the stars and it was an intergalactic tale rather than an earthbound tale? Well, it, it kind of varied. The original, the early ones were mine, you know, things that I thought of right away. And, what, and those I mostly wrote myself, except for that one which was kind of a funny idea, but I didn't feel like writing it, so I gave it to Gary near the end. What if Sergeant Fury fought World War II in outer space? That right. was just some kind of nutty idea that, you know, but I didn't want to do it myself. Um, a couple that came in the pinch hit, like when the Sergeant Fury in World War Three or in outer space, whatever yeah. that was, that had already been drawn, and I think it was Gary Friedrich who had come up with that plot, right. but for some reason he couldn't do it. And Roy asked me if I could do it. And hear me, I was not a Sergeant Fury reader, but I had to <laughs> kind of go back and figure out what those characters were all about okay. and um, make some sense out of it. So, you know, so we were all over the map on those things. But, but I enjoyed doing that book. That was a fun book to do. Now, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that one of the main reasons that this issue exists is because of Star Wars. Now, this issue came out in 1979, April 1979, and so yeah, they it was definitely like Star Wars was huge, and they I guess they the sequels are kind of getting in the works now, and uh, Empire Strikes Back would come out the following year. Okay, why don't we talk about this? Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos was a book that Stan dreamed up in the 60s, following a, a unit in the army. You don't really have to know any of the specific details about this comic in order to fully enjoy uh, this issue. It definitely helps. There are a lot of characters, but you don't really need to know them. Stan, or I mean, the writer Don Glutt doesn't really uh, delve into any of the characters other than really Sergeant Fury. Um, There are a couple of them who have more lines, like like, uh, Dum Dum has some more lines. 
but for the most part, it's not. Uh, you really only need to know Fury. So if you're you're even just vaguely familiar of him and his typical sort of attitude and and archetypal characteristics, then you're fine. Uh, this also doesn't follow the same typical what if pattern uh, as taking an original issue and then just kind of branching it off. Doesn't do that at all. In fact, the Watcher explains that this battle is mirrors our own World War II, except it's in outer space. It's an intergalactic battle where this space station called Pearl is under attack. And of course, that's an allegory to uh, Pearl Harbor. So basically what this is telling us is that uh, the whole, these alien forces uh, are going to attack this space station because it is a, uh, it is a key part, of, it's a key entry point to, to attack the, the planet Earth, which is the same way, reason why Japan uh, went after Pearl Harbor. Because if they controlled Pearl Harbor, then they have a clear shot to invade North America. And so basically, I had a little bit of an eye roll when it's like, okay, America, the American involvement in the war is now representing like the entire planet. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I'm Canadian, so Canada was involved in World War II before America was. So why can't the, the whole planet be represented by Canadians or by the British or whatever? But, you know, this is an American comic book made for an American audience. So that's what's going to happen here. Um, and so, yeah, we meet these two characters here. These are kind of the two main characters here. Sergeant Fury, of course, is the one with the big cigar. And then Hargrove, this new guy, the one with the the long cigarette holder between his fingers, is the other main character in this story. And Hargrove is made new specifically for this event, for this issue. He's never been seen before. He's also never seen again after this issue. This is his only appearance. When I first read this, I thought this is this guy is a Star Trek red shirt. He's only here so that he can die at the end of this issue. <laughs> Cuz that's that's you know that's how it usually is, especially in these what if issues. Why are we introducing a brand new character when Sergeant Fury has a whole team of characters that you can rely on? Well, one of the main reasons that he's in this issue is because he's a pilot. And since this is an intergalactic uh, space story we need a pilot and sergeant fury and his team are not air force they are army so none of them are pilots so they have to have this guy on the team um, the artist is herb trimpy with pablo marcos on the inks and uh, it doesn't look like herb i think pablo marcos really does a, a lot to add to the inking to add to the style he does actually give it more of a dick airs kind of a style because dick airs was the guy who did sergeant fury for many many years uh, takes out a lot of the trimpiness in the artwork although you still get some very trimpy poses but it looks good i, I enjoyed the artwork uh, so anyway so the this story is broken up into a series of chapters and the first chapter kind of deals with establishing the conflict, the intergalactic conflict. And here, <laughs> this is really funny. Um, oh, Phil just made the same comment that I was just about to make. He says, I love Fury and Sawyer smoking inside their space helmets, especially Sawyer's pipe. I was going to say that exact same thing. It's so funny. And especially because, you know, they get knocked around and then the pipe kind of just goes clink, clink, clink all over the helmet. <laughs> and like Ash is probably spraying in his face or something, but... That's one of the, they don't, there's only one time when they kind of make fun of that or point out the ridiculousness of it, ridiculousness of it when, when Dum Dum, a little further on here in chapter two, 
Dum Dum's hat falls off of his head, and he can't put it back on his head because he can't get his helmet. He can't take his helmet off in space, and so he gets blasted by this bad guy. Um, I thought that was pretty funny. Okay, skipping back, uh, back to chapter one. The Watcher brings us up to speed, and tells us that the the two timelines diverge with Leonardo da Vinci, because Leonardo, of course was famous for his artistic endeavors, but also his his scientific mind and his fantastic machines that they mention here. And so in our reality, we focused, uh, our history focused on ships and uh, and traveling via the water, whereas uh, the alternate timeline focused on flying machines and used da Vinci's visions and his work in order to um, to propel that side of technology forward. And so the two timelines now have a divergence because uh, when you deal with flight, the, natu- the next natural leap is space exploration. And if they're doing this back in the 1500s, they have a huge head start and get way more technologically advanced. So their timeline spreads like wildfire. So in the 1800s, uh, here's the battle with Napoleon. And meanwhile, at the same time, in the 1800s, uh, the other timeline is as has reached the moon. So, and in 1903, when the first airplane soared on uh, on Earth in our timeline, they have made it to another dimensional plane. So that's pretty cool. I, I like that aspect of the of the timeline change. I think that's pretty neat. Moving on here into chapter two, we get more of the plot. Now, uh, in in the heat of battle, Sam Sawyer has has died, and there's a new person in charge of, like the new captain, and it happens to be a machine, and the machine is giving orders. And Sergeant Fury's like, I'm not taking orders from no stinking machine. Uh, but he's the commanding officer, apparently, and Nick Fury always, you know, as much as he likes to think that he's he takes action and, you know, takes matters into his own hands, he follows the chain of command. And so Fury does do that, and there's a little robot pal that the computer controls that gives him these little readouts. Now, one thing that I do like about this is that there are still some aspects of 1970s technology, like when this little robot needs to talk he spits out little a little ticker tape of dialogue <laughs> so that the Fury can read it. Um, that's very uh, out of date, I guess, in terms of our technology today. But that was nineteen. That's what nineteen seventy nine technology still kind of looked like. Also, because these guys are army and not navy and not um, not air force, they get a special mission to go and retrieve um, an admiral and. Uh, and they don't know why they just have to go retrieve this admiral. So that's that's and then Hargrave is sent on a different mission because he's a pilot and has to go go do something else. And so they find out that the 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 uh, they call them I didn't explain the Japanese the allegory for Japanese or is alien race and what are they called? Ultimately, I guess it doesn't really matter. We can just call them the aliens. So the aliens are going to attack a space station called Midway. And, of course, that is um, to parallel the events of the Battle of Midway, which happened after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was a big naval assault, a naval battle in our, in our reality, and so it's going to be a big space battle. And it's a, it's a turning point in the war because the Japanese fleet was decimated at that time. And so, uh, oh, here they are. What does he call them here? The aliens call the humans the, the Terrans because of, of Earth. 
But yeah, they they are going to attack Midway, and Sergeant Fury has to uh, capture this this um, admiral, which we find out in the third chapter is actually a German a German traitor. Like he's going to betray the whole planet Earth and side with the aliens. But then he's also going to betray the aliens as well, so that both of their fleets are defeated, and he can step in and take con- full control of Earth. And you can see that in this in this one panel where the, we see the backside of this German admiral who's betraying people, that his speech bubble is in this scratchy, thick, uh, has a scratchy, thick border. And that's similar to the previous issue with Conan saying that this is a different language. So he's speaking German here. Um, they don't do that a whole lot in other books. This is the only place I really know that they use that specific technique to indicate a different language. It's neat how they've kind of carried that over from one issue to the next here. Oh, Phil Phil says they're just called the Betans because they're from the beta side of the sun. And there's the alpha side of the sun where the earth is, and there's the beta side of the sun where they are, and they're battling over this. There's, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Phil. So the the last half of this, this uh, book is basically just a big space battle. And up until this point, it hasn't really felt particularly like a Sergeant Fury book uh, until we get to this this battle here. And once they get onto the space station and they're actually fighting like the Howling Commandos, they can take off their helmets and they actually get into the thick of battle. Um, it feels much more like a, a Sergeant Fury story. And yeah, the, they're there to take the Admiral because the Admiral is a traitor. And they get in there and we find out that the Admiral is actually Baron Strucker. Big surprise. If any of you know uh, Sergeant Fury, the uh, Sergeant Fury comics, and Baron Strucker is kind of his arch enemy. Um, and so it's not a surprise that he shows up here. They get into, yeah, here's the, here's the big fight. And this is where people like Dum Dum and uh, like Gabe, this is Gabe Jones has his little uh, trumpet laser thing that he uses. And uh, who's this? Izzy Cohen? Uh, or is that Rebel? I don't I don't remember who these guys, which guys these are. He has a lasso, so he's probably Rebel, Reb Ralston. And then, uh, but it doesn't matter. You don't have to know any of their names in order to join this and enjoy this issue here. Uh, Fury and Strucker have a great battle in an airlock, and they accidentally open the airlock, and, and Strucker gets sucked out of the airlock. Uh, yeah, so they all kind of round up the bad guys and send them away, and and save the day, and in the very end, um, oh yeah, they're trying to get away, and no one knows how to fly a ship because they're not a, uh, they're not army, so they have to save. So they they have to use the little robot guy to fly the ship. And just before this, there was a moment where the robot was trapped under some debris, and Sergeant Fury was just going to leave him because he's just a blasted robot. But then at the second thought decides to save him, and doing that allowed him to escape from this space station because the pilot of the, the ship they escaped on was going to be this little robot guy. So I like that it stays true to Nick Fury's character. It's like he is tough as nails, um, but but even if he hates somebody, if they're on the same side of the war, he's going to do everything he can for that person. Um, very admirable quality for, for Nick to have, and it ended up saving his life. And even though, uh, and, and also he betrayed betrayed direct orders to leave Hargrave, uh, who was stranded on the space station, he went and picked him up and brought him back to safety, which totally defied what I thought was going to happen. Hargrave does not die at the end of this issue. He survives. I don't know why they did that. 
doesn't make a whole lot of sense because why else have this guy in here, especially if the robot guy kind of survived it? Well, I guess the robot didn't. He he blew up. He got a direct hit to the face. And so this guy has to take over. So there, I mean, they could have written it a different way where they didn't didn't need either of those guys. But the, the kind of Twilight Zone ending here is that Nick Fury says, you know something, sir? Sometimes I think that mechanical, that, that mechanic slipped you Sam Sawyer's brain. Sam Sawyer is his captain. And then the robot says, hardly. I am programmed only for war. I have no human emotions. You'll get a new guardian robot. Thanks, Sam, says Nick. And then the robot says, and don't call me Sam, which is something that Sam Sawyer always said because he always wanted Fury to, to call him Captain Sawyer, address him as Captain, but Nick would refuse to do that over and over. It was a running gag throughout the entire series. Don't call me Sam. And so Nick Fury's like, huh, what? Is this really the mind of Sam put in a robot? We'll never know. Huh. Okay, so this issue, this is the first issue of What If that I've really felt like Eh, I don't know if I really enjoyed this or not. It was okay, but because it didn't drastically change like the events of something that we're used to, uh, you know, other than the course of history, I suppose, but it, it didn't have the same feel as other what if issues. It didn't have that sense of, I know these characters, but I don't know what's going to happen next. The really only real different thing is that it's in outer space because Nick Fury and his team did exactly as they always do. Things happen exactly as they always do. He comes out guns blazing and and ends up saving the day like always happens in every single issue of Sergeant Fury. And it wasn't really anything different other than the setting. So wasn't too keen on this one. Wasn't my favorite issue. But, uh, you know, that's just the way it goes sometimes. They can't all be winners. Um, next issue we're going to talk about is... What if four different people became Nova? Uh, if you don't have it already, this story is found in What If Classic, the Complete Collection, Volume 2. And you may want to check out Nova Classic, Volume 1, if you don't have this one already as well. Uh, it's good to have this one in hand, especially if you don't know the actual origin of Richard Ryder, the original Nova, uh, because this story, it recaps it in a, in a page, but... Other than that, it has uh, four different stories. So it's, it's good to have like a baseline understanding of, of Nova's powers uh, and kind of why, how he got it in the first place because that's sort of the basis of, of this story here. So what if Nova had been for other people? First of all, here's a great cover by Validar. I'm not familiar with that name, Validar, uh, but it's inked by Joe Sinnott. So it looks very, very much like a Joe Sinnott style, maybe even like a... Uh, Busema or Rich Buckler kind of a, a drawing because <laughs> putting Joe Sinnott on it really he really puts his own spin onto things when you especially see the th the thing and the and the Mr. Fantastic looks quite good oh yeah let's let's bring that cover back yeah there's a whole bunch of villains on the front cover as well because we're going to meet them throughout the course of this story uh, the cover doesn't really have anything to do with the inside except for the that we see these faces because the Fantastic Four and these villains don't face off against Nova at the same time at all so this story, it started by Marv Wolfen. Actually, Marv wrote the whole thing, but it has a series of pencilers and, and inkers and colorists and letters, in fact, throughout the whole thing. Uh, the, the beginning is by John Buscema, 
um, John Buscema is the person who, who, along with Marv Wolfman, did the first couple of issues of, of Nova's series. They are the co-creators of Nova. So they kick off things here by just giving us a brief recap of Nova's origin. And he's one of these characters that is, um, like, people kind of know of his existence, but don't really know a lot about Nova, because he kind of just pops up every once in a while. These days, in the modern comics, is a different person who's Nova, uh, who has kind of stuck around for a little while. And so, yeah, we get a, the sense that there's this other Nova and he's dying and he needs to pass on his powers to somebody else who's worthy. So he goes to Earth and searches the globe and finds this one guy, Richard Ryder, sends an electronic beam down to him, puts him in a coma for a while. And then he, when he wakes up, he has these powers and he is part of this large, this bigger intergalactic story. This wonderful John Buscema splash page here shows some of the key moments from the early issues of Nova, including his... Uh, his battle and team up with Thor and Spider-Man. Uh, those are always good for a little bit of an interesting story. And then we get taken into the first story here. And the art is by Simonson, uh, Walter Simonson, early on in his career. This is 1979, I think. So he's been, he'd been around for a few years. But, but the style is very, uh, very unlike his style. And I think partly due to the, uh, the inker, uh, uh, I don't even know how to properly pronounce this, this fellow's name here. Um, and so, yeah, we're taken into this and we find out that this guy, this criminal has, um, taken, this criminal has murdered, has, uh, has, has killed this guy here. Um, the husband of this, of this woman with the red hair. We're going to find out a little bit more about her in a little bit. Uh, what is her name? Helen Taylor. And a few months later, after the police have kind of given up their search for the killer, Helen Taylor gets hit with the beam and turns into Nova. She gets the powers of Nova, and she immediately embraces the powers, and because she is in grief and in mourning, uh, she is so angry and full of rage that she takes this on the road and starts just taking out any criminal who, who could possibly know who the person is who killed her husband. And this is a very, very different take because Richard Ryder was a kid um, who who was kind of down on himself. He had some self-esteem issues. He was having problems with some bullies and such. And but ultimately, a fairly well-grounded person. So when he gets his powers, he you know he he kind of does the right thing with them and uses them for good. But this woman here is so single-minded in her focus that she can um, uh, that she she doesn't know what to do. Uh, except except go after these guys. Moving on here, she co eventually confronts the kingpin, and the kingpin ends up dying in the in the consequence. She, he falls out the window, and he falls. And she doesn't even save him. She flies away. That's how much she doesn't care about the people that uh, she's fighting. He dies. She continues to take out crime left and right, and eventually the president wants the Fantastic Four to take her into uh, take her into custody. So. This is a wild ride. We have some great artworks and great uh, action sequences here. Uh, Fantastic Four actually play a pretty big role in the Nova series, uh, toward the conclusion of the Nova series. So it's neat to see them here as well. And uh, in the end, they overcome her and place her in a stasis. And then here's the trick. Here's the kicker at the very end. The police pull a car out of uh, out of Long Island Sound. And it happens to be the guy who killed her husband wearing the same clothes. He probably immediately ran away and crashed his car and drowned. And she had no idea. She'd been terrorizing the city 
for no reason. She would never, ever have found this guy. Her, her, her quest was hopeless. So I thought that was kind of a hard-hitting, really interesting, hard-hitting story. And that's only, how many pages is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pages. So all of these stories, I think, are going to be about eight pages. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the second story. Second story is art by uh, Carmine Infantino and Frank Springer. And we are introduced to this guy right here. And I think his only name is Jesse. Oh, before we move on, Phil has a comment here. He says, a strangely unsatisfying end. Would have worked better if she'd killed him without knowing his identity. Maybe, but then also then her story would be done. You can, I mean, I guess, I guess her story is done because she's now in like a permanent stasis. If she woke up, she would continue on her rage-filled quest. But yeah, if she had, I guess she would still do that if she killed him without knowing his identity because that would be a, she just could continue on but if she had killed him then we would have the foresight of like of knowing that she is already she has unsuspectedly got her revenge having him killed himself meant that even he even killed himself in this car before she got her power so her quest was pointless from the beginning um and i think that is an interesting an interesting uh way of looking at it because she she really had no purpose she didn't realize that she had no purpose so yeah, interesting to to uh, think about that in that context. But moving back to this guy here, Jesse is a a homeless fellow who is being kicked out of this hotel here. He just needs a warm place to stay because you can see it's winter. There's snow on the ground. He just needs to stay warm, and no one's helping him out. So through this, we find out that he actually has the Nova suit in his bag, and he doesn't want to wear it because he says it looks kind of silly. <laughs> I don't blame him. People would give him a, from some stairs. Uh, but he seems like a good guy. And he's like looking up at the star and he, I don't know, says a little wish or something and, and needs to find something. And meanwhile, an armada fleet of Skrulls is heading toward the planet. But he knocks on a door. Uh, Jesse knocks on a door and finds himself at an orphanage. And the, the person who runs the orphanage is willing to take him in. He makes friends with the kids that are there. In this day and age, I don't think that would fly. I don't think you let strangers around children like this. But for the sake of this story, it's going to happen. Uh, Carmine Infantino has some really, really nice artwork in here, inked by Je uh, Frank Springer. And uh, I just like the looks of his faces. He does a really good job of, of showing the happiness and content atmosphere of this, of this little group that's gathered around for the holidays. Meanwhile, the Skrulls have noticed a power signature on Earth and are going to try and exploit it. Little do they know that the power signature is coming from Jesse himself. He takes out his costume and he becomes Nova. And a very different Nova. This is a Nova that doesn't really care about himself because he know he views himself as worthless. He's homeless. No one cares about him. So he, But he still fights uh, on behalf of other people. In fact, to the point where he battles these Skrulls and gets takes their ship uh, out of range and, and back into orbit and then blows up the ship. He kills himself in order to stop the Skrull armada from attacking the Earth. Selfless act. Amazing. Um, just to think about this end where... You know, he didn't even care for the power. He didn't use it at all. But when push came to shove, he he actually did use it and ended up paying the ultimate price. He knew what had to be done. Um, he wasn't out to be a crime fighter on a regular basis, but this is what happened to him. So that was a kind of a cool story too. Seems a little shorter than the other ones. 
Uh, and then we can move on to the third story here. This one's by Ross Andrew and Frank Giacoa, Koya, or Giacoya. This one is about what if Peter Parker became Nova. And it starts in a very, very familiar... Uh, oh, Ross Andrew, of course, is a longtime Spider-Man artist at, uh, around this era. So this is neat to see him take on Nova. But uh, yeah, he gets bit by the radioactive spider, and instead of giving him powers, it poisons him, and eventually he actually becomes paralyzed from it, from the poison. And um, Ben and May rush to the hospital to meet the doctors there. May has a heart attack because of all of the, the stress. So the doctor has to uh, worry about two Parkers in his hospital. He's able to save one of them. May is not the one he saves. So Peter Parker feels so down on himself. He blames himself for being stupidly being bitten by that radioactive spider. He He's depressed, majorly depressed, because he's in a wheelchair and his aunt died because of him. He feels... He just feels like he's... He says he's a bad luck charm. Everyone should stay away from him or they'll all, or they'll all die. Cameo from Professor Warren... Um, he gets zapped by the the power and becomes Nova, and he can walk again, and he can fly, and he can do all these crazy, amazing things. And he sees a burglar entering his house, and he stops the burglar from killing his Uncle Ben, which you think would be a good thing, except the bullet ricochets off of him, off of Nova, and pierces the the burglar, killing him. And he's like, I didn't even mean to kill that guy, and I killed him. Everyone around me dies. He's, his, the, he just doesn't accept the power. He turns away from it. He rejects it. He does not become a superhero. And he walks away with a suit in the garbage in that famous um, Spider-Man number 50 scene right there. So another, another story where the person, all three of these people have had major character flaws, I think. Uh, and one of them had used it for good, the middle guy, Jesse. But these two guys, uh, the first one, Helen and Peter, both sort of didn't know what to do with their powers and their own personal thoughts and personal feelings kind of got in the way of the the bigger picture the larger scale um, justice that needed to be served and then the last story here with art by george perez and and tom palmer uh, an award-winning team here you can see shows it's a criminal and we don't even get to know this criminal's name we just know that a criminal has the power nova and you know he's a criminal because he's smoking a big fat cigar uh, and only criminals do that, as well as Nick Fury and The Thing and Wolverine. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, he's he's like, I'm, I'm the brains behind these things. You guys know nothing. And they've actually, at this point, killed all of the superheroes on Earth. They took them out one at a time, thanks to Nova's computer prime. This picture of all of the heroes is a great cross-section of the Marvel Universe in, the 19, in 1979. Because we have... A lot of the characters that were introduced in the in the 70s, like um, Iron Fist and Ghost Rider, uh, Nighthawk on the Defenders. Uh, you can even see Howard the Ducks slightly here beside uh, beside Falcon, who was a major player in, in um, Captain America at the time as well. Yeah, it's just, and I don't know who this one is behind Nighthawk. It, maybe it's Machine Man, but it doesn't really look like Machine Man. I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah, so they've taken out all of these guys. And then, in typical villain fashion, they have to bicker over who is supposed to going to be the leader of their little group. We have Doctor Doom, the Red Skull, and the Living Pharaoh, and um, and they they all want to and, and Nova as well, and they all want to be the leader. And so Doom tries to assassinate Nova, but then uh, just before he can do that, Red Skull takes out Doom, and then Red Skull's going to take out Nova, and just before that, Pharaoh takes out New, uh, uh, Red Skull. 
but then the pharaoh is able to take out nova kills nova and then the pharaoh is now poised to take over the entire planet and kill he says he's going to kill he may end up killing half of the population of the planet sounds like a different purple guy that we know but little did he know that the secret to the answer to all of his questions about eternal life because he wants to end his eternal life he doesn't want to live forever he wants wants to find peace the answers lie with Nova, whom he turned to dust just recently. So, joke's on him. Then we have one last page to round up everything and confirm exactly what we've just experienced. That And what does the leader say here? Not the leader. <laughs> what does uh, the watcher say here? He says, four worlds, four Novas, and four fates. Such is how reality is. We've seen the corruption of absolute power. That's with Helen. We've witnessed charity rewarded with death, that's Jesse. On one world, the powers of the gods are rejected, that was with Peter. And on the fourth world, the powers are abused with the criminal. All the while, I stand and observe. I can do no more, for I am the watcher, and that is both my destiny and my curse. The end. Well, did you like this issue? What did you? What are your thoughts on it? Did you did you enjoy it? Is it neat to see the four different versions? This is similar to the other issue that was uh, what if what if other people had been bitten by the radioactive spider? And I liked that issue more because I felt like it it followed the path of Spider Man and the Spider Man's world and his universe as it regularly unfolded. And it was just neat to see different characters take on that rather than this one. Whereas four people had the different Nova powers, but they all had their own trajectories. And so we didn't get that close kind of content, playing with continuity that we did in that Spider-Man issue. So I don't think that I like this one as much as that one. It was an okay issue, though. Uh, we've had two very drastically different what-ifs now that don't play on the actual trope of twisting reality as we know it. I mean, they sort of are, but not really. You know what I mean? So I'm hoping that we can get back on track and get back into um, back into the regular swing of what-ifs. But there is a letter page in the last issue that I wanted to read here. Oh, yeah. So there are some comments about the Conan issue that we read the other day. Uh, issue number 13, somebody wrote in, there's a big long letter of somebody who absolutely loved the issue, and um, there's just some interesting notes here. They said, while Big John Buscema did indeed outdo himself penciling the issue, it was Ernest Ernie Chan who was primarily responsible for one of the major artistic qualities for which you laud the issue. Um, most importantly, it was he who, working over John's rough pencils, turned the lady cabbie Danette from a standard comic book heroine to a particular lass, which we feel gave the feeling of individuality you loved in the artwork. The guy who wrote the letter was praising was praising the use of, or how beautiful Danette was <laughs> in the comic. And he, so they say, you see, while attending Phil Seuling's lavish comic art convention in Philadelphia and New York in the summer of 78, Roy was accompanied by his own lovely strawberry blonde lady, who just happened to be named, also be named Danette. Uh, Roy had indeed been wrestling for some months with certain aspects of the long-delayed Conan of the 70s epic, and it was his decision to use Danette as the heroine, at least in physical aspects and certain character traits, that fired him with enthusiasm for the project when various problems raised their Hydra-like heads. So there you go. Uh, Danette was fully aware of it when apparently was on board. It also says it is un unlikely that Danette will ever appear in any Marvel comic again. 
She and Roy would like that character to stand alone in that single special issue as one of the women Conan encounters in this wild road to kingdom, the only one in the 20th century, of course. Nor, we fervently hope, will there ever be a sequel to What If number 13. No matter what the sales, we suspect that they will be very good indeed of the issue. Um, it, it says, uh, if Conan ever again visits the 70s or 80s, it will certainly be over Roy's loudest, sincerest protests. And frankly, we just don't think it'll happen. We're commercial. We do, we're not necessarily as crass as our harshest critics prefer to believe. So there you go. I was hoping that we would have a sequel and that we would find out that Conan has an illegitimate son in the modern day time when he's on Savage Avengers, but maybe that won't happen. Uh, it could still happen because they don't have to bring Danette into the picture. They could just say it's the son and hint to all of that. I still think it should happen. <laughs> Comment from Phil. He says, I don't think using unknown characters helped this Nova issue. The fun is seeing differences in the characters we know. I think that's a very good point. The Peter Parker um, issue or segment of this story was probably the most most interesting out of all four of these because it was Peter and the spider didn't bite him the same way. You know, it's like that was that was a cool thing to see. So I agree with you completely on that, Phil. I, I And from the cover, from the cover of the issue, I was expecting like, what if Mr. Fantastic became Nova or what if the Red Skull became Nova? Uh, I, that's what I thought it was going to be going into this comic, but that wasn't how it ended up being. Okay, next. What if Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, fought on the side of Fu Manchu? If you have What If the Complete Collection, number two, it's actually not that complete because this issue is not in there. This, this book has issues 13 to 15 and 17 to 23, but not issue number 16. Why, do you ask? It's because Fu Manchu and a bunch of the supporting cast members in the Master of Kung Fu book are licensed characters from the Sax Romer novels, uh, the, the Fu Manchu novels that came out, you know, from the 10s to 50s, 1910s, 1950s. And, and they have a special, they had a special licensing deal at the time. And for a long time, Marvel was not allowed to reprint any of these stories, the series or this what if, uh, simply because they didn't have the rights to the characters. But recently, the last couple of years, they have had, they've made a new deal. And so we've been seeing these great Master of Kung Fu omnibuses, and we've been seeing these epic collections. And, and uh, yeah, that, so they're now able to reprint this material. However, apparently, one of the stipulations in the deal is that they can only reprint Master of Kung Fu issues in Master of Kung Fu collections. So this issue of What If is found in the Omnis, um, and I'm hoping it'll show up in the Epic Collections, but it is not available um, in the complete collection because it's not a Master of Kung Fu specific collection. If that makes sense, I don't know. Deals are weird. I'm sure their lawyers had to work with their lawyers and they had to come up with this deal that everybody agreed on, and that's that was the result. So fortunately, Conan doesn't suffer from that. Uh, Conan, the the issues are reprinted in the in these What If collections, so that's nice. It's obviously a much different deal. I was at a convention recently, a local convention, and I found this for five bucks. So I'm happy that I have um, a physical version of this that I can use since my 
what if collections don't have it. And if you do want to read it and you have Marvel Unlimited, it's, it's actually on Marvel Unlimited. So you can log on there. And that's what we see here. I'll make it bigger. This is Marvel Unlimited right here. Now, who? what are the credits on this one here? What if, this is from August 1st, 1979, writer Doug Mensch, penciler Rick Hoberg. And Rick Hoberg has been doing a lot of the... Uh, uh, a lot of the art in the last few issues, and he's been doing a bunch of the covers as well. This is a very, very different style than what we've seen Rick Holberg in these other What If issues, and I'm assuming it's probably to, uh, a lot to do with the inker Bill Ray, but there's also an inker credited on the first page here, Stevens. See, it says the inkers are Ray and Stevens, and I think that's Dave Stevens, Dave Stevens of the Rocketeer fame. And uh, if you if you take a look at a, the way he renders a lot of these characters, it kind of does look a little bit like his Rocketeer style. Rick Hoberg is more, much more of a classic comic book, classic 1970s kind of style of artwork. But this one gives it much more of a rounded human kind of look, which is actually very complimentary to the artists that worked on the Master of Kung Fu book as well. Okay, so before we get into this, I encourage everybody to uh, have a copy of Master of Kung Fu Epic Collection Volume 1 on hand so that you can compare back and forth. It's actually really just the origin story because once they get past the origin story, things go in a completely different direction. Um, I read this Epic Collection, I've read Master Kung Fu for the very first time a few months back when I did an episode for my podcast. Uh, it's quite good. I really like the book. I've only read the first volume so far, and there are there's another volume out and another one coming out soon, and I'm looking forward to all of those. Uh, so I have a very good base understanding of Master Kung Fu and who he is, what he stands for. So that really set me up well to go into this issue. There are a bunch of supporting cast and concepts surrounding the mythology of Fu Manchu and his his sci fan and all this kind of stuff that I think if you didn't know anything about it, this issue kind of just drops you in the middle and doesn't do a great job of explaining it all. Uh, I The only reason I didn't get lost is because I've read that other stuff. So it's probably more than the other issues of what if, I think it's more important to have a good understanding of, of Master of Kung Fu. But yeah, so let's go. Let's go into this one here. What if Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, had remained loyal to Fu Manchu? So for those of you who don't know, Fu Manchu is like the most evil dude in the world. He wants to conquer the world, and he has this international network of assassins that can you know, pop up anywhere in the world at any time he wants. And his son, he's trained his son in the, in the martial arts of Kung Fu. He's like the best guy in the world at, at Kung Fu. And in the course of the first issue, as we'll find out here, uh, he sends he sends Shang Chi on his first his first mission to assassinate this guy named Petri, Doctor Petri, who is a character who was Fu Manchu's main adversary in the, the old novels. And uh, in this first attempt, he kills him, and then is confronted by Nayland Smith, Dennis, Sir Dennis Nayland Smith, who is also from the novels. And through a, in a conversation that they have, Nayland Smith convinces um, Shang-Chi that his father is really not a good guy. And, uh, and so he goes back and confronts his dad and, and realizes that everything's backwards. Everything that he grew up, everything that he's known is, is a lie and a sham. So he says... The next time you see me, we will be enemies. 
And that is the whole story as told in Marvel Special Edition number 15, which is the first appearance of Shang-Chi. That's pretty much the whole issue. It goes into more detail, of course. So the thing that changes in this issue here is that after Shang-Chi kills Petri, Dr. Petri, he jumps out the window and doesn't confront Nayland Smith and therefore doesn't get convinced of his dad's evil ways. And of course, <clears throat> Nayland Smith doesn't know who killed Petri, so he goes on a crusade to find the killer and, and stop him. So we are introduced to all of the supporting cast members, including Black Jack Tar, and including these guys, Clifton Reston and Wu. I can't remember her last name. But anyway, they are regular occurring characters in the comics as well. So here we have our team. Usually it's these three plus Nayland Smith plus Shang-Chi kind of going on adventures. And they uncover a plot. And so Shang-Chi has this spy uh, element to it. And a lot of it takes place in England and stuff. It's like James Bond was a big influence. And so they uncover this plot to kidnap the queen. And it's going to be Fu Manchu that's going to send his goons to kidnap the queen. And I guess he's going to send Shang-Chi to do the job, actually. If this is an actual issue of Shang-Chi, I'm not sure. Oh, Clive... Phil Owens, Clive Reston, and Lyko Wu. Thank you. Yeah, I, I remember reading that in the issue here. Um, Clive Reston is in the first volume. I meet him a couple times, but he hasn't really fully become a supporting cast member yet, so I haven't read those issues. Thanks for cluing us in, Owen, uh, Phil Owen. And let's see here. Yeah, there's a spy element to, to Shang-Chi. And so we're going to uncover this plot here to kidnap the queen. And I like how through this here, it retains the dialogue. One of the, the big things about the Shang-Chi comics is that the narration is all kind of Shang's uh, inner dialogue. And uh, this whole issue is written by Doug Mensch, who wrote majority of the issues of, of Shang-Chi. So he really knows how to write one of these stories. This is in 1979 as, as well. So it's quite near the end of Shang-Chi's run in the comics. Um, Doug has done this for quite a few years now. And, and it works really well. It feels exactly like, like one of the comics, except that Shang is on the other side. But there's this tension throughout the entire issue. It's like he's, he's starting to put the pieces together that his dad is not, like things don't quite line up the way that he's been told. It's like, and one of the biggest thing is that he keeps, like, his, his, like Fu Manchu keeps talking about how he wants to bring peace to the world. But then he's always killing people, and he's always telling Shang to go and kill people. They were, there's a there's a disconnect there, and so why is there this disconnect? And Fu Manchu is, has some good arguments. It's like, well, we're only killing the people who need to be killed, the ones who are fighting against our purposes and all this kind of stuff, right? And in the meanwhile, there's this underground or uh, there's this subplot about Fu Manchu bringing back people to life, bringing back people from the dead. He's gonna going to raise them from the dead. And I think they become characters in the comics, or at least he starts to, he certainly deals with this kind of stuff in the comics. Um, but we have, uh, let's see here, they have a big fight in the cemetery where they're confronted with the team for the first time. And kind of through the course of this, he starts to understand that, that his dad is not good. And he also he sees, um, oh, hold on a second. We got another comment from Phil. He wants me to go over to see the gravestone here. This gravestone, Sir Hugh Drummond, Bulldog Drummond. Nice Easter egg there, yeah. It's the raw strength of the bulldog that'll win every time. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I didn't notice that the first time. That's good. He sees Laiko, Laiko Wu, and she's Chinese. 
And he's like, why is a Chinese person fighting on the side of the enemies? He doesn't quite understand that. So like maybe everyone doesn't have the same ideals as my father. And it's, it's that kind of thing that helps push him in the right direction. Um, and we get to the kind of the climax of it. And these he raises these goons to life. And they, they're on these giant lizards. I love this. They look like uh, kimono dragons or something, I guess. or something. They have this great armor. It makes them look like Atlantean warriors or something. But they bust in, and Shang kind of takes them all, takes them all down. He kills them all, and uh, and I love some of this. Like I really feel like Rick Hoberg is actually doing a good job of trying to emulate Paul Glacey's work, like the just the the thinness, the like. I mean, he looks like Bruce Lee, right? And that's what Paul Glacey was going for as well. And I I just get this this kind of Paul Glacey vibe from his artwork. It definitely doesn't look like Zek, who was the other big artist kind of at this time on Master of Kung Fu. Uh, Mike Zek had a much more, I don't know, maybe a little bit more of a traditional style than Glacey did. So I like this. And look how many panels are on this page. It's not in the it's not in the book, so I can't tell you what page number it is. But one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's ten page. There's ten panels on here. And that really uh, makes you you stop and get involved in the action. Um, it, th- those kind of breaking the page down into multiple panels is essential, I think, for Kung Fu because then there's a lot of martial arts moves and you want to be able to see the action and also the follow through. And you get to see all of that kind of here. There's even one panel that's split into, even though it's only, oops, it's one singular panel. I'm not exactly sure why he decided to to do that because it's not like there's a change in the flow of the action through the two panels. It didn't have to be two at all. So <laughs> that's strange. And then you, yeah, if you turn the page here, we have one panel that is uh that doesn't have borders, although the characters kind of bleed into the top border and the bottom and it all these main characters in the foreground are red. It's a great shot of just like there's the police versus the siphon and Shang's just like looking at this is like what the heck is going on? <laughs> it's great. Uh, everything kind of ramps up toward the end here to a great climax. And in the end, his uh, Shang Chi uh, conf- comes to the realization that his dad is no good. And I love this because this is true to Shang's character. Shang is a he he's a very very moral person and he knows what's right and what's wrong and so even though he didn't have the conversation with Nayland Smith that turned him onto the right path he still got there eventually and that's perfect like it's still a what if and it's not out of character and that's what I really like to see in these what ifs because if he decided to become the next Fu Manchu I would be like that really goes against kind of everything that we know about about Shang-Chi. Um, like there's a deep sense of, of good inside of him that can't help that c- but come out. And that's what I really like about Shang. And, uh, and, that, and it worked well here. Now the biggest difference in this final issue is that Shang decides that Nayland Smith isn't any better than his dad. Uh, he, he says, you believe in the same ideals he does, death. Um, he says, those five guys who were burned were to be pitied. He's talking about the guys who were brought back to life. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, Shang didn't kill them. Nayland Smith and his crew killed them. He, they burned them all. And he said, they were to be pitied, to help, not slain. It does not matter whence the spark of life came or who instilled it. The life existed. And I think that's really cool, too. He's not out to, to kill anybody, even the people who deserve it. Or, you know, it, the very fact that they have life means that they are entitled to life. So uh, very kind of a neat thing. 
So he, and then he goes on his own. He is now a lone wolf going on forever on his own little quest. Who knows what he's going to do? I would love to see a follow-up of this issue to see uh, how he chooses to follow his path now. So that's this issue. It's very, very cool. I, I liked it a lot. It's not a surprise because I quite enjoyed the comic and Doug Bench. I, I just like Doug Bench a lot. I think his art, his uh, writing is, and his storytelling is a lot of fun. Very, very interesting. I love the philosophical twists that he puts in here. And Rick Holbrook does a good job of, of doing the artwork and keeping me entertained that way. So I was, I was complaining, I think, in the last episode that the last few issues of What If have kind of gotten away from the concept of What If, of like, the one path diverging into two ways. And this one really got it back on path, on the path of uh, the way that I think it should be going. And, uh, and I'm happy to see what comes next. Uh, I do want to read something in the letters page. Let's see if they include that here. They don't. Okay, so let's go to the letters page in because the, believe it or not, the letter page actually is in the What If collection. They did put that in here. It says, with this issue's Master of Kung Fu opus, I must reluctantly end my association with the What If title that I have conceived, edited, and far too occasionally written over the past two or three years. This is Roy Thomas. He says, I find that um, a Sumerian named Conan and a Thunder God named Thor, all in their various comic book and comic strip incarnations, are taking all the time I have just now. So rather than spread myself too thin, I'm turning the series over to Marvel Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter and future editor Mark Gruenwald. It's been a ball conceiving and writing tales of Spider-Man as a member of the Fantabulous FF, the Hulk with Bruce Banner's brain, the invaders, and a very real post-World War II metamorphosis into the all-fabled all-winner squad, and most especially, Conan the Barbarian as a visitor to a troubled century. And he goes on and on and on about this a little bit in his typical Roy Thomas fashion. And uh, yeah, he does say, however, um, I'll still be doing an occasional Thor what if, I suppose, or even a special Conan issue if just the right and non-20th century idea presents itself. Something kind of like that happens in the future, I understand. Not quite. And if Chris Claremont and John Byrne ever have the time to flesh out an idea of mine concerning the X-Men's origin, I'll be there as co-editor as well. I don't think that happened. And I kind of want to know what that issue is or what that story is. So if anybody out there has heard of that and knows what, what he's talking about, then please let me know because that would be interesting. Well, this time we're talking about what if number 17, what if Ghost Rider, Spider-Woman, and Captain Marvel had remained villains? Now, this the cover to this one is really cool because all three of them are on the cover. And if it weren't for the fact that it specifically says the, these are three separate tales, I would have expected that uh, we would have had all three of these together. That would have been really cool to see Ghost Rider, Spider-Woman, and Captain Marvel in an adventure together. I don't know if that has ever happened before. Maybe some of you can... Well, actually, you know, now that Ghost Rider is one of the Avengers, and, well, Captain Marvel is Carol Danvers, so I guess that doesn't really count. Yeah, I don't think that we have ever seen these three specific characters all in one issue together, uh, having an adventure together. If I'm wrong, please correct me. I would love to hear it. Now, these three characters, all three of them don't have any epic collections. So I don't have... I don't, I don't have the comics to reference these, um, except for Captain Marvel. I have this trade of the first Captain Marvel masterworks. 
So that helped me out a little bit for this one. Um, but the Ghost Rider issue and the Spider Woman issue, I looked up on Marvel Unlimited so I could reread those those origin issues. All three of them have masterworks, though, Ghost Rider being the most recent, I think. So the material is available, and I'm hoping that um, sooner or later we will get Ghost Rider Epic Collections because he's a, a character that is is uh, is a long-running series. Both the original Johnny Blaze series and the Danny Ketch series are both perfect material to include in the Epic Collections. Spider-Woman series is a little on the short side. Captain Marvel could probably do a decent ep- Epic Collection, though, as well, so I'm hoping that that those ones will come out eventually. Now that the material has been masterworked, they seem to get it out in trade paperback form in one way or another um, a little while after it's been in masterworks. So I'm sure we'll see these uh, coming up soon within the next couple of years or so, all three of these. Anyway, let's get on to the story here. First up is Ghost Rider. And so the, uh, the watch here, yeah, the watch here, let's see, this story is by Stephen Grant and the art is by Carmine Infantino. Uh, Chick Stone does the uh, the inks for this one page, and then we have other inkers doing the other stories. And this, I guess, is a, maybe a time-saving method. I don't know if they had to get this one out in a hurry or what. I don't know what other reason we'd have to have three other inkers on this one issue. Four inkers total, I guess, if you count Chick Stone in this splash page. Uh, okay, this is yeah the first issue edited by Mark Grunewald, so he is now officially kind of on staff. This is a couple years after he wrote in in the very first letter page, I think it is, to say how much he loved this book, this What If book, and now he's on staff with Marvel. So that's kind of cool to see that progression. In the first story here, we, uh, the inks are by Frank Springer, and we have Ghost Rider with his confrontation with Damon Hellstrom, the son of Satan that we see in uh, one of the early issues of Ghost Rider. I think maybe number, is it number one or number two? I can't remember. But anyway, through this, Damon is uh, getting is getting Johnny Blaze to recount the events in his origin story. And in the origin story, he is the foster child of this guy here, Crash Simpson, who is a stunt driver. And this is this other girl here, Rocky is his daughter. And uh, and he got he's been told that he has cancer, so Johnny makes a deal with the devil. This is all told in his origin story. He makes a deal with the devil to save the life of Crash because he is a great admirer of his work. So Crash jumps over. He has a, a stunt where he's going to jump over twenty-two cars on his motorcycle. In the original comic, here's where the paths diverge. In the original comic, Crash doesn't make it. Like he dies in this stunt, and that's a tragic loss because. Johnny has sold his soul to the devil, and then he saved the life of Crash Simpson in terms of the cancer, but then Crash dies anyway, and he's still now beheld to the devil for for the rest of his life. So that's that's tragic. And then, so there's there's two things here. Um, the first thing is that in, in this what-if timeline, Crash doesn't die. What that means is when he walks in on Ghost Rider, when Ghost Rider manifests for the first time, it's Crash that walks into the room instead of Rocky. And that's significant because Rocky is somewhat practiced in the dark arts for some reason. And she, because of her pure heart, is able to let Johnny have control, like not not be in controlled by uh, by Satan. He now is in control of himself, so he becomes a good guy. In this one, because Crash comes in, Crash doesn't have that same power, so Ghost Rider is still under the control of Satan and remains to be bad guy. So Ghost Rider kills Crash right away, 
and then later on he kills Rocky, and so all hope of him becoming a good guy is gone. And in the end, because now he's confronted by the son of Satan, and Satan is trying to correct the mistakes of his father, he takes out Ghost Rider, and Ghost Rider dies. So it's it's a it's a kind of a cool story here. This is exactly what I want from What If, is to find out what would happen if, and uh, if the past diverge, and this is what the past diverge, and then it comes to a horrible, tragic end, which seems to be part and parcel for most of these What If issues. Really, really good stuff. I It's all told in like five pages, I think, or maybe eight pages, and, and it's it's well told. It's a little confusing if you don't know anything about Ghost Rider, so I would suggest at least reading the origin story of Ghost Rider before reading this one because it's well worth knowing exactly what the implications are here because they are big implications. The next story is inked by Mike Esposito, and it's about Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman's origin is, is pretty weird. You can read it in Marvel Spotlight number 32, uh, or you can read it in the first volume of the Marvel Masterworks. And yeah, Spider-Woman is it's so strange. So we're, we're plopped right into the middle of the action here where we find uh, this is these are the events that are played out in that Marvel Spotlight issue where it busts in to the, uh, the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. base where S.H.I.E.L.D. Is, has a HYDRA agent um, and uh, this HYDRA agent is her lover. And through a series of events, she accidentally kills her lover. So you can see in this panel, Nick Fury flips this guy, uh, his name is Jared, over his shoulder, and Spider-Woman accidentally uh, zaps him and he dies. So the key moment that changes here is that uh, Val, Val Cooper, uh, busts in and distracts Spider-Girl, and she accident accidentally kills Nick Fury. In regular continuity, Val doesn't doesn't appear here, and Spider-Woman sees a TV that shows that Jared is alive. In fact, Jared is a double. Jared is an actor um, that Hydra has hired to pretend to be her lover. And she realizes that her whole life is a sham and goes to confront Hydra. In this one, she doesn't get that chance. She doesn't have that revelation. So she goes back to Hydra and stays in, in the employ of Hydra. Um, because her, I guess her father or her Hydra is the reason for her creation, or she believes so. They they say that she that they know her origin, and they will tell her eventually, as long as that she keeps doing what they ask her to do. So I don't like the inking as much. I have never really been a fan of Mike Esposito's inking, especially through the '70s and '80s. Um, and Carmine Infantino's art is excellent, but in this issue, the inking just kind of leaves a, a little bit flat. There's some faces that kind of look odd, and and it just doesn't look as nice as the Ghost Rider issue. And um, and then the, the next issue with Captain Marvel looks really nice as well. Just this middle one, inking is a little not as great. Okay, so continuing on with this story, in the original continuity, eventually the Hydra, uh, what's his name, the, the main Hydra guy here, tells Spider-Woman about her origin with the High Evolutionary. But in this one, she doesn't find out. And so she has to kind of go on these quests to find out for herself. But she gets caught, captured by the Contessa, and she's on trial. And Vermis, that's his guy's name, his name is Vermis, Count Vermis. He comes to her trial, and, and this is really funny. He says, how do you know the defendant? Uh, she was in my employ for a short time. Have you learned anything that might have direct bearing on this case? The woman you call Arachne cannot be legally tried in a court of law because she is not a human being, but a mutated spider. <laughs> and everybody's shocked, and she doesn't believe it. 
Uh, of course, if you know the origin of Spider-Woman, you know that she kind of is a mutated spider created by the High Evolutionary. The High Evolutionary takes animals and turns them into humanoid people, uh, humanoid creatures with, with human-level intellectual brains. But with Spider-Woman's case, he played with the formula so that she would have a more human appearance. Uh, he is the first female that he's ever created, and her origin has had so many little retcons and whatnot and twists and stuff, so it, who knows what her actual origin is these days, but that's kind of where it's at now, at this time, and so she doesn't really believe that, so she goes on to try and find her real history, and she gets some clues in Paris, and then she just kind of flies off. She's now forever a uh, on the run. I don't know that you would really say that what if she had remained a villain, because at this point she's left Hydra, she's not really a villain, but she's certainly not using her powers for any good either, so it's kind of neutral. This is a neutral end, and she flies off in, to, in search of her origins. Kind of a, this, this wasn't as good as the first story. Um, I liked how they played around though with just her not knowing, because that's really what informs her character, is once she realizes her her place, or like how she came to be, um, her attitude toward her 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 powers and, her, and herself really changes, and that's what drives her to be a hero. So take that away, and she just kind of doesn't really have any purpose. She is mindlessly, kind of aimlessly wandering now throughout the world. The third story here is Captain Marvel. And while Captain Marvel first appeared in the pages of a magazine called Marvel Superheroes, uh, he graduated to his own title, and the events in this issue are the ones that are told in kind of Captain Marvel number one and two, where Marvel is faced against this Kree sentry. Now, the he's in kind of a, what do you call it, a catch-22, because if he, uh, the, the sentry has been sent by Yon-Rog um, to destroy this military base, but Captain Marvel has orders to, uh, to execute a plan with something to do with this military base, so he, he is ordered to protect the military base, but the Kree sentry is going to destroy the military base, and the, the, the catch-22 is that Kree are not allowed to interfere with the, the sentries. That's an act of treason. So either he uh, commits treason or he fails in his mission. What is he going to do? In the comic, he destroys the sentry, saves, and he saves the uh, the he saves the government plant um, because of the humans that he knows and has come to like. And so he's branded a traitor, and he's no longer part of the Kree Empire. And the Kree, of course, are are the quote unquote the villains in this story uh, because they are the ones who are attacking Earth. So, but in this what if story, he is not branded a traitor. He figures out a way to both save the station and not destroy the sentry. So he's not branded a traitor. He fulfills his mission and he still is part of the Kree army. So it's, it's, this one's kind of weird because you feel like he kind of, he's the hero. He figures out how to do both things. He, and he should be the hero, and he remains in his same position. In fact, he's graduated to Colonel. He, at the end of this, he's Colonel uh, Marvel instead of Captain Marvel. And you think this is good for him, but then you realize, wait a minute, he's still Kree, which means he's still a bad guy. Um, oh, Pablo Marcos is the inker in this issue, and I have said this before on these live streams that I am a fan of Pablo Marcos, and he does a nice job with the inks on this one. Not too much of a fan of how Carmine and Pablo do Ronan. He doesn't look as great as, like, say, when Kirby does him, but uh, that's that's okay, minor thing. Still gets some really nice action shots and some pose. Look at this typical wispy Carmine Infantino hair on Carol Danvers here. 
Yeah. So there you go. Those are the three issues. I think I liked the Ghost Rider one probably the best out of the three, with Captain Marvel being in second place. Um, I I am I would prefer kind of full stories because I think that they can flesh out the characters and the the consequences a little bit better. If all three of these had been full length issues, I think they would have been really good. I think even I would have enjoyed the Spider Woman one more because then you get to play with uh, with her journey and see where she goes instead of trying to cram it all into the eight pages. And all of these pages, like they also spend a lot of time kind of bringing us up to speed. And when we have three stories per issue and we're spending a portion of each of those stories on recaps, then you don't have enough time to really progress this, the story as much as you'd like to. So that's the only downside to this. But this issue is pretty good. Tomorrow, um, oh, and I don't think there are any letter pages for these next few issues, at least in the in the collection, they don't include letter pages. So I'm assuming that they stopped them for a few issues. But next up in our story here, we're going to talk about number 18. This is Doctor Strange. What if Doctor Strange were a disciple of Dormammu? Now, this is a great issue. I really enjoyed this one. And it's I think it's because it's using one of the lesser used characters in the uh, in in the what if story we haven't really seen doctor strange at all yet um, because these stories have been populated with so much to do with the avengers and spider-man and fantastic four so we're it's nice to see them branching out in the letter pages of the last issue they said that roy thomas was stepping off so i wonder if now because of that we're now seeing some more variety in the types of characters that we're going to be encountering uh, through these next several issues, um, although issue 19 is Spider-Man, so maybe that's not exactly true. But anyway, so this issue here, number 19, is, uh, yeah, what if Doctor Strange were a disciple of Dormammu? And now, it's good to have the the first Doctor Strange epic collection uh, called Master of the Mystic Arts as a reference, uh, because uh, there are a few items there that uh, that pertain to those stories, those early strange tales stories. It's also good to have um, the 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 Steve Englehart series uh, the, when he was on Doctor Strange. Now that epic collection is coming out later this year. This year it's called Alone Against Eternity, and those issues play heavy into uh, the story that's being told in this particular issue of What If. Um, those are issues. Doctor Strange is like around eight, nine, and ten. Uh, so if you have the corresponding masterworks, uh, that also will work if you want to uh, to follow along with those. Um, otherwise, yeah, I think we have everything that we need in order to move ahead. So let's make me smaller on the screen here. What if Doctor Strange were a disciple of Dormammu? And this is a, a tale told by Peter Gillis and drawn by Tom Sutton, embellished by Bruce Patterson. I That's a name that I'm not familiar with, Bruce Patterson, but the combination of Tom and Bruce is actually really, really nice. Uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit here. Uh, because we're dealing with Steve Ditko stories, and we're dealing with stories that were drawn by Gene Colan for Steve Englehart's run, I think, I feel like these guys are a nice combination of sort of the two of them. If you do just a cursory flip through of these issues, you can see a lot of sort of Steve Ditko qualities in in the way that these characters are drawn, just a little bit more on the cartoony side, 
which is kind of Tom Sutton's specialty. But then you also get some really dramatic page layouts like Gene Colan would do, especially when you get toward the end of the story here when they're fighting eternity. Um, it's just uh, you get some way more and more dramatic stuff. Steve Ditko didn't always go into the, the most dramatic kind of storytelling. He was a lot more of a straight-ahead storyteller, uh, a lot more reserved with his layouts and his compositions. Okay, back to this story here. We are given the a, a one-page recap of Doctor Strange's origin, of him getting in the car crash and ruining his hands so he can no longer be a surgeon and then going to seek the help of the Ancient One. Now, it's important to know this origin story because the person who Doctor Strange is before becoming a sorcerer is very different from the person who Doctor Strange is becoming after uh, after becoming a sorcerer. And this plays really, really heavy into this story. He is so full of himself and driven by his own ego when he is the best surgeon in the country. And it's not until after he meets the Ancient One and becomes a disciple of, of the mystic arts that he really has a change in his attitude and becomes a lot more calm and a lot more open-minded and, and willing to help people. Um, so how does that play into the story? Well, let's see here. Doctor Strange meets Baron Mordo, and if you've read the early Strange Tales, you know the that uh, Mordo is a disciple of the Ancient One as well, but knows that Strange is going to be better than him, and there's this rivalry that goes on, and Dormammu eventually becomes a disciple of Dormammu. I'm oh, sorry, Baron Mordo eventually becomes a disciple of Dormammu. So in this story here, Dormammu has a different plan. He wants to reach out. He tells Mordo to reach out to Doctor Strange and become a friend of his instead of an adversary. And that's the change here because Dormammu's plan is to, to uh, draw on Strange's ego before he falls victim to the Ancient One. So right off the bat, Mordo says, I will, I'll instantly fix your, your hands. Like, that's not a problem for me. The Ancient One, he wants you to go through all these hoops. Don't worry about that. I'll fix it. So he fixes Doctor Strange's hands. He goes back to becoming a surgeon. His power and his ego just grows even, even bigger and bigger till at the right moment, Mordo steps back in and says, you are not a doctor because you wish to heal. You want power, power over your enemies. Follow me and I shall give you that power and more. And of course, because Doctor Strange does indeed want that power, he follows Mordo, and Mordo takes him to go meet uh, Dormammu, and the and he never he never goes back to following the Ancient One. So there there's where the the, the quest diverges, and it's a great setup. I really enjoyed that aspect of it um, because now we have a Doctor Strange who is just power hungry and will do anything for this. And uh, and then I love that there's one scene here where the Ancient One goes to uh, different people to see if they, he can get a new disciple. And one of the people he goes to is Doctor Strange, which is actually uh, a fairly logical place since Doctor Strange does study the dark arts and the mystic arts as well as science. But Doom has too much of an ego to be a disciple, so that doesn't work. So here's a great panel, a little at the page after the Doctor Doom scene, where Strange gathers all of these uh, different mystics from around the world. Now I'm gonna go through these one at a time because they are actually all characters from the comics. Um, up at the top here, sitting in this pedestal, is Genghis, the senile Genghis. He's kind of a funny character. He first appears in Strange Tales 113. Um, 
And then we have here, of course, Dr. Druid, who is f most famously known, I think, for being on the Avengers during Roger Stern's run in the 80s. In behind here is uh, Hamir the Hermit, who is uh, the Ancient One's main uh, assistant in the early Strange T Tales days. And his son is actually Wong, who becomes Dr. Strange's assistant. And then Victoria Bentley, who had a one-off appearance in the early Strange Tales issues where um, Baron Mordo was masquerading as her father, her dead father. Um, she eventually comes back into the story years, years later and becomes a sorcerer herself. Then Lord Fife right here. Lord Fife is, uh, he, he eventually becomes a character named Asriel. Uh, he first appears in Engelhart's Doctor Strange number nine. And this guy over here, Barum, also appears in Doctor Strange number nine. And over here, Rama Caliph. Uh, Rama Caliph is uh, from Strange Tales 136, along with Genghis. They appear in the same issue together. Agatha Harkness, I'm sure if you are followers of Fantastic Four, you'll know her uh, as a very powerful sorcerer, but also as the nanny to baby Franklin, Franklin Richards. Then here, Count Karezi is also from Doctor Strange number nine. Now, the reason why there, I'm saying Doctor Strange number nine so much is because the events in Doctor Strange number nine Dorma, is is that Dormammu is being brought to our reality, and these mystics are all gathered together with Doctor Strange in our reality to fight back and make sure that Dormammu cannot come. And in this one, they don't have Doctor Strange. They're gathering all these people, but without the power of Doctor Strange, they just aren't powerful enough. So they have the amulet, the Eye of Agamotto. Uh, where they can call, they can reach eternity, but they can't reach eternity because Doctor Strange is actually not worthy enough. And if you've read the early Doctor Strange Strange Tales issues, you know that Doctor Strange goes to see eternity and is worthy. That's how he is able to become the Sorcerer Supreme after the Ancient One passes. But even the Ancient One himself is not worthy of eternity. So without Doctor Strange, there is no hope. They have no hope in defeating Dormammu. Um, meanwhile, there is another plot which also has to do with the, the events in, in uh, Doctor Strange 9 and 10, uh, where Yumar, who is Dormammu's sister, also needs a conduit in order to bring her into our reality too. And in this reality, she uses Doctor Strange. And so she becomes much more powerful. She has a romance with the Doctor Strange, but the, it's an odd romance because the two of them are trying to suck each other's power from each other. <laughs> it's like they both think that they are the more powerful one, and so there's this great, this great uh, tension between it. It's a, uh, it's a. De there's definitely a, an allegory between their mystical tension and their sexual tension. It's really, really quite good. Yeah, so the the whole last half of this issue is this big, big battle where the mystics, the nine mystics are trying to, or the eight mystics are trying to get together to, to defend themselves and defend the world against now Dormammu and Doctor Strange, his main disciple. It's great. There's some really nice action. So there's really nice um, mystical enchantments and, and just everything that's going on here. They eventually, um, Genghis and Druid go against the Ancient One's orders and do eventually find a spell that will summon or take them to eternity. So they face off against eternity and we get some great Steve Ditko-ish kind of panels in here with the backgrounds, the crazy psychedelic landscapes. And there's the one panel or there's the one page once they get sucked up into the eye and Doctor Strange is falling, falling, falling. And we have these really tall and skinny vertical panels and the dialogue in here says as he falls beyond space beyond time beyond dreams beyond thought 
beyond life and death, beyond anything he holds on to, he falls to land where? And I love how they've spaced out these these word balloons in these vertical panels so that your eye has to jump from the top to the bottom and then back up to the top to the bottom. It, it gives a sense of speed because your eye is going straight down these vertical panels. He's falling. Dr. Strange is falling fast, fast, fast. And then he lands uh, with a big thud. And uh, I thought that was just a really, really nice layout, a nice staging, especially with the, the word balloons kind of guiding you through that or the text, the narration boxes. Um, yeah, we meet at Eternity, and Doctor Strange faces off again, And but the thing is that uh, Dormammu has another plan. He's always got another plan. Oh, that's right. Do, uh, the Ancient One brings in Victoria Bentley and Hamir and Wong, uh, as, uh, who have no real mystical training but have a lot of potential, so he brings them in to use their kind of mystical energy or whatever, and it evokes a couple of spirits who possess their bodies to help them out. And the plan that they say is that you got to give up the amulet to Doctor Strange, believe it or not, because of events that are going to happen. So, and I love it. Doctor Strange gets more and more enraged as this issue goes on. His ego and his, his craving for power becomes bigger and bigger and bigger all throughout this issue. And that's really, really great because otherwise the tension, you would not get the same sort of tension at this climax as you would if it, if it wasn't building this well. Um, he goes to see Dormammu uh, once he has the amulet, thinking that he's going to take over everything. He's going to be more powerful than Yumar. He's going to be more powerful than Dormammu. Um, he ends up killing the Ancient One, I think. I can't remember. But anyway, Dormammu follows him through the eye to confront Eternity and traps Doctor Strange in a glass and uses him as a lens to focus his power because he knows that he needs the power of a mortal in order to to, to defeat Eternity. So now we have this epic battle between Dormammu and Doctor Strange, or and uh, and Eternity, with Doctor Strange in the middle. Doctor Strange, he he has the power to to shift the balance in one way or the other, and it says here, uh, what where is this? He is the fulcrum. He is the point where the two great forces teeter in perilous balance. He knows that he can tilt the balance either way, but which, Dormammu, whom he hates, or Eternity, whom he fears? Shall he choose chaos or order, good or evil? Shall he make the cosmic denial or the cosmic affirmation? Great panel with this division between the fiery side of Dormammu and the dark dimension and the cosmic side of Eternity splitting Doctor Strange in half. What's he going to do? Choose his good. And eventually uh, sends Dormammu back to his dimension. Everything is okay. Uh, oh yeah, the Ancient One is not dead. I thought he was, but he's not. And Doctor Strange says he's been a fool. He finally understands there's something more than power, more than what Dormammu offered. And he becomes his disciple. And at the end, we see that Doctor Strange gets a new costume green and yellow and black, which is very similar to the costume that Baron Mordo had, who was the Ancient One's other disciple. Now, it's interesting, though, because the color theory on these heroes in the Marvel Universe is usually such that heroes are colored in the bright primary colors like blue, red, and yellow. Um, like you think of like Spider-Man and Iron Man and Thor and stuff, they all, Captain America, they're all blue, red, and yellow. That's the good guys. And then you have the villains who are always the secondary colors like purple and green. You think of the Green Goblin or Doctor Doom. And even the Hulk in these early days was treated sort of as, as a bad guy, as a monster. He's purple and green. So to strip Doctor Strange of those primary colors, which was odd that he had those colors as a villain, 
and place him now as a hero in green is just to show you that uh, I, I think that it's sort of an allegory for his past, his past as a villain. Now he has to wear that as a reminder. Now I'm just totally reading into that, that kind of stuff, but that's what I like to do <laughs> when these things come up is read into it. So hopefully you agree with me on that. Or, they, or maybe they just wanted to do something different. I don't know. Could be just as simple as that. But that's the end of our story. There's no letter page. I really like this one. I think that it worked so well tying in some key moments in Doctor Strange's history up to this point. It had a really interesting story. I loved the completely radical direction that these things went, but still stayed in the character of what we understand of these characters. And then the Doctor Strange coming around at the end and realizing that he was wrong also stays true to Doctor Strange's character. So I thought that all of it really worked, really worked well. I love the art. I love the story. Um, I thought this was an excellent issue. So have any of you read this issue? I, I, I'd love to hear your comments. Um, it, it's one that doesn't usually get talked about in the, when people are mentioning their favorite what-if issues, but I thought it was quite good.